Section 14 of The Good Dog Book. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Bree Bayaki. Adrift on an Ice Pan by Wilfred Thomason Grenfell. Part 1. It was Easter Sunday at St. Anthony in the year 1908, but with us in northern Newfoundland still winter, everything was covered with snow and ice. I was walking back after morning service when a boy came running over from the hospital with the news that a large team of dogs had come from 60 miles to the southward to get a doctor on a very urgent case. It was that of a young man on whom we had operated about a fortnight before for an acute bone disease in the thigh. The people had allowed the wound to close, the poisoned matter had accumulated, and we thought we should have to remove the leg. There was obviously, therefore, no time to be lost. So having packed up the necessary instruments, dressings, and drugs, and having fitted out the dog sleigh with my best dogs, I started at once, the messengers following me with their team. My team was an especially good one. On many a long journey, they had stood by me and pulled me out of difficulties by their sagacity and endurance. To a lover of his dogs, as every Christian man must be, each one had become almost as precious as a child to its mother. They were beautiful beasts. Bryn, the cleverest leader on the coast. Doc, a large, gentle beast, the backbone of the team for power. Spy a wiry, powerful black-and-white dog. Moody, a lop-eared black-and-tan, in his third season, a plotter that never looked behind him. Watch, the youngster of the team, long-legged and speedy, with great liquid eyes and a Gordon setter coat. Sue, a large, dark Eskimo, the image of a great black wolf, with her sharp-pointed and perpendicular ears, for she harked back to her wild ancestry. Jerry a large rowan-colored slut, the quickest of all my dogs on her feet, and so affectionate that her overtures of joy had often sent me sprawling on my back. Jack, a jet-black, gentle-natured dog, more like a retriever, that always ran next the sledge and never looked back, but everlastingly pulled straight ahead, running always with his nose to the ground. It was late in April, when there is always the risk of getting wet through the ice, so that I was carefully prepared with spare outfit, which included a change of garments, snowshoes, rifle, compass, axe, and oilskin overclothes. The messengers were anxious that their team should travel back with mine, for they were slow at best and needed a lead. My dogs, however, being a powerful team, could not be held back, and though I managed to wait twice for their sleigh, I had reached a village about twenty miles on the journey before nightfall and had fed the dogs, and was gathering a few people for prayer when they caught me up. During the night, the wind shifted to the northeast, which brought in fog and rain, softened the snow, and made traveling very bad, besides heaving a heavy sea into the bay. Our drive next morning would be somewhat over forty miles, the first ten miles on an arm of the sea, on saltwater ice. In order not to be separated too long from my friends, I sent them ahead two hours before me, appointing a rendezvous in a log tilt that we have built in the woods as a halfway house. There is no one living on all that long coastline, 
and to provide against accidents, which have happened more than once, we built this hut in which to keep dry clothing, food, and drugs. The first rain of the year was falling when I started, and I was obliged to keep on what we call the bal heaters, or ice barricades, much farther up the bay than I had expected. The sea of the night before had smashed the ponderous covering of ice right to the land wash. There were great gaping chasms between the enormous blocks, which we call pans, and half a mile out it was all clear water. An island three miles out had preserved a bridge of ice, however, and by crossing a few cracks I managed to reach it. From the island it was four miles across to a rocky promontory, a course that would be several miles shorter than going round the shore. Here, as far as the eye could reach, the ice seemed good, though it was very rough. Obviously, it had been smashed up by the sea and then packed in again by the strong wind from the northeast, and I thought it had frozen together solid. All went well, till I was about a quarter of a mile from the landing point. Then the wind suddenly fell, and I noticed that I was traveling over loose sish, which was like porridge and probably many feet deep. By stabbing down, I could drive my whip handle through the thin coating of young ice that was floating on it. The sish ice consists of the tiny fragments where the large pans have been pounding together on the heaving sea, like the stones of Freya's grinding mill. So quickly did the wind now come offshore, and so quickly did the packed slob, relieved of the wind pressure, run abroad, that already I could not see one pan larger than ten feet square. Moreover, the ice was loosening so rapidly that I saw that retreat was absolutely impossible. Neither was there any way to get off the little pan I was surveying from. There was not a moment to lose. I tore off my oilskins, threw myself on my hands and knees by the side of the comatic to give a larger base to hold, and shouted to my team to go ahead for the shore. Before we had gone twenty yards, the dogs got frightened, hesitated for a moment, and the comatic instantly sank into the slob. It was necessary then for the dogs to pull much harder so that they now began to sink in also. Earlier in the season, the father of the very boy I was going to operate on had been drowned in this same way, his dogs tangling their traces around him in the slob. This flashed into my mind, and I managed to loosen my sheath knife, scramble forward, find the traces in the water, and cut them, holding on to the leader's trace wound round my wrist. Being in the water, I could see no piece of ice that would bear anything up, but there was, as it happened, a piece of snow, frozen together like a large snowball, about twenty-five yards away, near where my leading dog, Bryn, was wallowing in the slob. Upon this he very shortly climbed, his long trace of ten fathoms almost reaching there before he went into the water. This dog has weird black markings on his face, giving him the appearance of wearing a perpetual grin. After climbing out on the snow, as if it were the most natural position in the world, he deliberately shook the ice and water from his long coat, and then turned round to look for me. As he sat perched up there out of the water, he seemed to be grinning with satisfaction. The other dogs were hopelessly bogged. Indeed, we were like flies in treacle. Gradually, I hauled myself along the line that was still tied to my wrist, till without any warning the dog turned around and slipped out of his harness and then once more turned his grinning face to where I was struggling. It was impossible to make any progress through the sish ice by swimming, so I lay there and thought all would soon be over, only wondering if anyone would ever know what happened. 
There was no particular horror attached to it, and, in fact, I began to feel drowsy, as if I could easily go to sleep, when suddenly I saw the trace of another big dog that had himself gone through before he reached the pan, and, though he was close to it, was quite unable to force his way out. Along this I hauled myself, using him as a bow anchor, but much bothered by other dogs as I passed them, one of which got on my shoulder, pushing me farther down into the ice. There was only a yard or so more when I had passed my living anchor, and soon I lay with my dogs around me on the little piece of slob ice. I had to help them onto it, working them through the lane that I had made. The piece of ice we were on was so small it was obvious we must soon all be drowned, if we remain upon it as it drifted seaward into more open water. If we were to save our lives, no time was to be lost. When I stood up, I could see about twenty yards away a larger pan floating amidst the sish, like a great flat raft, and if we could get onto it, we should postpone, at least for a time, the death that had already seemed almost inevitable. It was impossible to reach it without a lifeline, as I had already learned to my cost, and the next problem was how to get one there. Marvelous to relate, when I had first fallen through after I had cut the dogs adrift without any hope left of saving myself, I had not let my knife sink, but had fastened it by two half-hitches to the back of one of the dogs. To my great joy, there it was still, and shortly I was at work cutting all the sealskin traces still hanging from the dogs' harnesses and splicing them together into one long line. These I divided and fastened to the backs of my two leaders, tying the near ends around my two wrists. I then pointed out to Bryn the pan I wanted to reach, and tried my best to make them go ahead, giving them the full length of my line from two coils. My long sealskin moccasins, reaching to my thigh, were full of ice and water. These I took off and tied separately on the dog's backs. My coat, hat, gloves, and overalls I had already lost. At first, nothing would induce the dogs to move, and though I threw them off the pan two or three times, they struggled back upon it, which perhaps was only natural, because as soon as they fell through, they could see nowhere else to make for. To me, however, this seemed to spell the end. Fortunately, I had with me a small black spaniel, almost a featherweight, with large furry paws, called Jack, who acts as my mascot and, incidentally, as my retriever. This at once flashed into my mind, and I felt I still had one more chance for life. So I spoke to him and showed him the direction, and then threw a piece of ice toward the desired goal. Without a moment's hesitation, he made a dash for it, and, to my great joy, got there safely, the tough scale of sea ice carrying his weight bravely. At once I shouted to him to lie down, and this, too, he immediately did looking like a little black fuzzball on the white setting. My leaders could now see him seated there on the new piece of flow, and when once more I threw them off, they understood what I wanted and fought their way to where they saw the spaniel, carrying with them the line that gave me the one chance for my life. The other dogs followed them, and after painful struggling, all got out again except one. Taking all the run that I could get on my little pan, I made a dive, slithering with the impetus along the surface until once more I sank through. After a long fight, however, 
I was able to haul myself by the long traces onto this new pan, having taken care beforehand to tie the harness to which I was holding under the dog's bellies so that they could not slip them off. But alas, the pan I was now on was not large enough to bear us and was already beginning to sink, so this process had to be repeated immediately. I now realized that, though we had been working toward the shore, we had been losing ground all the time, for the offshore wind had already driven us a hundred yards farther out, but the widening gap kept full of the pounded ice through which no man could possibly go. I had decided I would rather stake my chances on a long swim even than perish by inches on the flow, as there was no likelihood whatever of being seen and rescued. But keenly though I watched, not a streak even of clear water appeared, the interminable sish rising from below and filling every gap as it appeared. We were now resting on a piece of ice about ten by twelve feet, which, as I found when I came to examine it, was not ice at all, but simply snow-covered slob frozen into a mass, and I feared it would very soon break up in the general turmoil of the heavy sea, which was increasing as the ice drove offshore before the wind. At first we drifted in the direction of a rocky point on which a heavy surf was breaking. Here I thought once again to swim ashore. But suddenly we struck a rock. A large piece broke off the already small pan, and what was left swung round in the backwash and started right out to sea. There was nothing for it now but to hope for a rescue. Alas, there was little possibility of being seen. As I have already mentioned, no one lives around this big bay. My only hope was that the other Comatic, knowing I was alone and had failed to keep my tryst, would perhaps come back to look for me. This, however, as it proved, they did not do. The westerly wind was rising all the time, our coldest wind at this time of the year, coming as it does over the gulf ice. It was tantalizing as I stood with next to nothing on, the wind going through me and every stitch soaked in ice water to see my well-stocked comatic some fifty yards away. It was still above water, with food, hot tea in the thermos bottle, dry clothing, matches, wood, and everything on it for making a fire to attract attention. It is easy to see a dark object on the ice in the daytime, for the gorgeous whiteness shows off the least thing. But the tops of the bushes and large pieces of kelp have often deceived those looking out. Moreover, with our memory, no man has been thus adrift on the bay ice. The chances were about one in a thousand that I should be seen at all, and if I were seen, I should probably be mistaken for some piece of refuse. To keep from freezing, I cut off my long moccasins down to the feet, strung out some line, split the legs, and made a kind of jacket which protected my back from the wind down as far as the waist. I have this jacket still, and my friends assure me it would make a good Sunday garment. I had not drifted more than half a mile before I saw my poor Comatic disappear through the ice, which was every minute loosening up into the small pans that it consisted of, and it seemed like a friend gone and one more tie with home and safety lost. To the northward, about a mile distant, lay the mainland along which I had passed so merrily in the morning, only, it seemed, a few moments before. By midday, I had passed the island to which I had crossed on the ice bridge. I could see that the bridge was gone now. If I could reach the island, 
I should only be marooned and destined to die of starvation. But there was little chance of that, for I was rapidly driving into the ever-widening bay. It was scarcely safe to move on my small ice raft for fear of breaking it. Yet I saw I must have the skins of some of my dogs, of which I had eight on the pan, if I was to live the night out. There was now some three to five miles between me and the north side of the bay. There immense pans of Arctic ice, surging to and fro on the heavy ground seas, were thundering into the cliffs like medieval battering rams. It was evident that, even if seen, I could hope for no help from that quarter before the night. No boat could live through the surf. Unwinding the sealskin traces from my waist, round which I had wound them to keep the dogs from eating them, I made a slipknot, passed it over the first dog's head, tied it around my foot close to his neck, threw him on his back, and stabbed him in the heart. Poor beast. I loved him like a friend. A beautiful dog. But we could not all hope to live. In fact, I had no hope any of us would at that time. But it seemed better to die fighting. In spite of my care, the struggling dog bit me rather badly in the leg. I suppose my numb hands prevented my holding his throat as I could ordinarily do. Moreover, I must hold the knife in the wound to the end, as blood on the fur would freeze solid and make the skin useless. In this way, I sacrificed two more large dogs, receiving only one more bite, though I fully expected that the pan I was on would break up in the struggle. The other dogs, who were licking their coats and trying to get dry, apparently took no notice of the fate of their comrades but I was very careful to prevent the dying dogs crying out, for the noise of fighting would probably have been followed by the rest attacking the down dog, and that was too close to me to be pleasant. A short shrift seemed to me better than a long one, and I envied the dead dogs whose troubles were over so quickly. Indeed, I came to balance in my mind whether, if once I passed into the open sea, it would not be better by far to use my faithful knife on myself than to die by inches. There seemed no hardship in the thought. I seemed fully to sympathize with the Japanese view of Harikiri. Working, however, saved me from philosophizing. By the time I had skinned these dogs, and with my knife and some of the harness had strung the skins together, I was ten miles on my way, and it was getting dark. Away to the northward, I could see a single light in the little village where I had slept the night before where I had received the kindly hospitality of the simple fishermen in whose comfortable homes I have spent many a night. I could not help but to think of them sitting down to tea with no idea that there was anyone watching them, for I had told them not to expect me back for three days. Meanwhile, I had frayed out a small piece of rope into oakum and mixed it with fat from the intestines of my dogs. Alas, my matchbox, which was always chained to me, had leaked and my matches were in pulp. Had I been able to make a light, it would have looked so unearthly out there on the sea that I felt sure they would see me. But that chance was now cut off. However, I kept the matches, hoping that I might dry them if I lived through the night. While working at the dogs, about every five minutes I would stand up and wave my hands toward the land. I had no flag, and I could not spare my shirt, for, wet as it was, it was better than nothing in that freezing wind, and, anyhow, it was already nearly dark. Unfortunately, the coves in among the cliffs are so placed 
that only for a very narrow space can the people in any house see the sea. Indeed, most of them cannot see it at all, so that I could not in the least expect anyone to see me, even supposing it had been daylight. Not daring to take any snow from the surface of my pan to break the wind with, I piled up the carcasses of my dogs. With my skin rug, I could now sit down without getting soaked. During these hours, I had continually taken off my clothes, wrung them out, swung them one by one in the wind, and put on first one and then the other inside, hoping that what heat there was in my body would thus serve to dry them. In this, I had been fairly successful. My feet gave me the most trouble, for they immediately got wet again because my thin moccasins were easily soaked through on the snow. I suddenly thought of the way in which laps who tend our reindeer manage for dry socks. They carry grass with them, which they ravel up and pad into their shoes. Into this they put their feet, and then pack the rest with more grass, tying up the top with a binder. The ropes of the harness for our dogs are carefully sewed all over with two layers of flannel in order to make them soft against the dog's sides. So, as soon as I could sit down, I started with my trusty knife to rip up the flannel. Though my fingers were more or less frozen, I was also able to ravel out the rope, put it into my shoes, and use my wet socks inside my knickerbockers, where, though damp, they served to break the wind. Then, tying the narrow strips of flannel together, I bound up the top of the moccasins, lap fashion, and carried the bandage on up over my knee, making a ragged, though most excellent, bootay. As to the garments I wore, I had opened recently a box of football clothes I had not seen for twenty years. I had found my old Oxford University football running shorts and a pair of Richmond football club red, yellow, and black stockings, exactly as I wore them twenty years ago. These, with a flannel shirt and a sweater vest, were now all I had left. Coat, hat, gloves, oilskins. Everything else were gone. And I stood there in that odd costume, exactly as I stood twenty years ago on a football field, reminding me of the little girl of a friend who, when told she was dying, asked to be dressed in her Sunday frock to go to heaven in. My costume, being very light, dried all the quicker until afternoon. Then nothing would dry anymore, everything freezing stiff. It had been an ideal costume to struggle through the slob ice. I really believe the conventional garments missionaries are supposed to affect would have been fatal. End of section 14 Recording by Bree Bayaki.